I would ask you this morning to turn to the book of Matthew, the 27th chapter, verses 38 to 44. This morning, you all know, because you've heard it in the music, you've seen it in everything that's been done in this service, that we're gathered together in commemoration of the resurrection of the King of Kings and of the Lord of Lords. Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, and our songs of praise, the orchestra, the uh, flowers that are at the front, it's so beautiful at springtime to think that flowers don't just pop up. They have an expression about corn that pops up among the soybeans in years that the soybeans are the crop that's planted, that it's volunteer corn. And you can begin to think that as corn sort of comes up on its own in a soybean field, that flowers are sort of volunteer flowers, but they're not. The seasons even testify to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. When these flowers pop up out of the crusty soil, we're told by the Apostle Paul that the seeds which fall into the ground and and decompose and then germinate and then produce flowers, even these things testify to the resurrection that God has ordained, that this is part of God's testimony concerning the nature of existence. And so everything this morning, from the flowers to the music, and now to the reading of the Word of God, all of these things are being brought together to point to one thing, and that is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, which happened around 2,000 years ago on Easter, on the Lord's Day, Sunday. Well, this morning, I don't want to turn to the usual places as we look at the resurrection. I want to turn to a strange place, which is this account of part of the crucifixion. This is something I've been wanting to do for years because it grabbed me. And I have to admit, I think it grabbed me um, partly through uh, something that you'll approve of and partly through something you won't approve of. Uh, The thing you will approve of is uh, Handel's Messiah. Um, he trusteth in God, let him deliver him, let him. You know, that, that, that phrase sung by a man, it just goes on and on. And that got into my brain when my mother tells me when I was a little child and I, my crib was next to the stereo and she'd play that over and over again. So this has just been a constant in my mind. But another thing you won't approve of, which is Jesus Christ Superstar. And uh, it strikes me that Today, in modern compositions, you almost have to go to the pagans for them to get the wickedness right in the Bible. The evangelicals don't seem to be able to get the wickedness right. But Jesus Christ Superstar does get it right. Uh, well, if you are the Christ, you know, show me a sign. You know, walk across my swimming pool. Remember that? Uh, and... So for years, I've looked at this text and I've meditated on it thinking... And I'll show you what the text says and therefore what I've been thinking over the years. But first, let's read it together. It's Matthew 27, verses 38 to 44. And we're not reading a book, but we're reading God's Word. And because it's God's Word, it has always been and it will always be true. Matthew 27, 38 to 44. This is Jesus up on the cross. And it tells us this. It says, At that time, two robbers were crucified with him one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. This is God's word. Well, it all started on the cross. And taking a careful look at the cross is the best way of seeing accurately the resurrection. How does this work? Well, look at what we see recorded here concerning the last few hours of Jesus' life. What was the drama of those last few hours? If you could play 
Andrew's movie on the screen, what would you see? Well, the constant thing you'd see, the overwhelming reality that you'd see, would be exactly what I've just read. You would see four groups of people hurling abuse at our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what you'd see. Uh, He was jeered, he was mocked, he was ridiculed. And this came right after his disciples had abandoned him, and it came on top of sham trials where people claimed to be exercising justice and truthfulness, when all they were really doing was caving into the will of the people, which is a despicable thing for any judge, any ruler to do. But in Jesus' case, they acted as if either they washed their hands, and so his blood really wasn't on there, but of course his blood was on Pilate's hands, or that the truth was this was a sinner. And so the crucifixion comes. It's been a sham trial. His disciples have abandoned him, and now he's taken out to Golgotha, and he's placed on a crossbeam. And there were a couple of ways they were crucified. One is that you know, you'd have one beam and then another one up on the top, but then the other was that the beam would be down a little ways. And we think it was the kind of cross where the beam was down a little ways because it says that there was a sign above his head and there must have been something above his head to hold the sign. So that's why you see this kind of a cross instead of this kind, which they also used. And so here Jesus is, he's stretched out, his arms and a leg, and his legs are stretched out on a set of wooden cross beams. His appendages, arms and feet are nailed to these crosses, these beams. And they dig a hole and they, they shove him up and he goes clonk down to the bottom of the hole, like setting a post in a fence. And there he hangs, all right? And as he hangs there dying, what happens? Well, he is jeered at, he's taunted, he's mocked, and he's ridiculed, he's laughed at, and he's scorned. Oftentimes I have trouble coming up with words for, uh, to use uh, in place of another word. I don't want to use the same word over and over in a sermon. You know something? I had no shortage of words to communicate the concept of ridicule, scorn, mockery, I mean, there's just an endless litany of words that we can use to communicate what we as human beings, what I do well. (laughs) You know? And this is what was thrown in his face. Now, who was it who was mocking Jesus? Well, four groups of people, I said. Three of them are revealed in this Gospel, Matthew. One is revealed in the Gospel of Luke. First of all, the Gospel of Luke. Who's revealed there? Well, Luke... Chapter 23, verses 36 and 37 tell us this. It says, The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. You see, the soldiers approach it from what they understand. What they understand is governmental and military authority. What a joke to them. They have the power of the Roman Empire behind them. And so they look at Jesus and they say, you know, you didn't put up much of a fight. You know, if you're the king, come on down from there. That's the first group, the soldiers. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. The second group we read of in Matthew, our text, verse 39, where we're told that Jesus was mocked by those passing by, passers-by. It says, those passing by, verse 39, were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads. Think of this. It's not enough to say it. But wagging their heads and saying, you are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Now, Jesus had not said what they said. Everything about the trial was false. There was just one false accusation after another. This was not what Jesus had said. A little twisted. You know how when somebody wants to stick it to you at work, they take something that is sort of what you've done, and they twist it a little, and what ends up coming out is something that's completely the opposite of what you said, but it has an element of truth. There's an element of truth here, but it's absolutely not what Jesus had said, but it didn't matter to them. It was convenient. It was something they could throw in his face. And so here we, we read that the passers-by were, were throwing this in the face of Jesus. Now, where was Golgotha? Well, it was outside of the walls of Jerusalem. Again, it was a fulfillment of the prophecy. You couldn't have the sin sacrifice done inside the city because 
it was filthy morally. And so it had to be outside the city. You know, the outhouses weren't in the house for many, many centuries. You go outside the house. You don't dirty the inside of the house. So Jesus had to be outside the city, outside the walls. Golgotha was not just outside, though. It was at a crossroads. Why? Well, because up until recently, it was always understood that one of the large purposes of having an execution was to warn the people against the sin that the person was being executed for. They were always done publicly. You go back into colonial times in America, you can find accounts. It was, it, was, it was a big party. Everybody would come from miles around to observe people being hung, people being punished. The stocks, that they were, when it was a lesser punishment, they were in the public square. And what happened was, as everybody saw this going on, everybody took warning. Now, we feel we're more civilized because we've, we've, we've put it in a private chamber. But there are always newspapermen there. And there's always lots of TV coverage and magazine coverage of the execution, you know. And still to this day, we have the same element, namely, that when someone is punished for a crime against society, take them to a place where everybody can see, and therefore everyone will be warned. And this is where Jesus was. He was at a crossroads. And so there would have been people who wouldn't have been there because they made a choice to be there, but they were people who were there because they were engaging in their normal business. They were traveling. They were on a business trip. They were going outside to, to go to their farm. Whatever. It was a major intersection like East 3rd Street and the bypass. And there the cross was, right in the median, lifted up, the three crosses. So everybody saw it. And what we read is that some of the people driving by or, or riding by or, or walking by, more likely, uh, didn't keep going, but they stopped. And seeing this sport, they joined in. And they themselves began to hurl abuse at Jesus. It says that the, those passing by said, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. And they're wagging their heads and they're saying, if you're the Son of God, come down from there. So this is the second group, the passers-by. What was the third group? Well, the third group in verse 41 tells us, Jesus was mocked by whom? By the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now, this is the only time that these three ruling groups are put together here in the, in, in the account of the crucifixion. And what's being said very clearly is none of the muckety-mucks were missing. Everybody who was anybody was there in terms of the Jewish leadership. And what do they say? Well, it says in verse 41, in the same way the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him and saying, he saved others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. Now ask yourself the question. Normally, do you think that the Jewish leaders were outside of the city gates from 12 to 3 o'clock in the day? Don't you think that they had something more important to do? Businesses to run, judgments to make in their courts, things to write in their, in their journals, uh, counting their money maybe. But certainly not outside the city at a crossway. So what were they doing there? Well, this is another indication of their perfect hatred for Jesus Christ. I never make the mistake that Jesus' death came out of nowhere and then it just happened. And isn't that good for us? No, it came from a particular place. And where it came from was, if, if you understand what I'm saying, it came from us. Because when perfect righteousness came down, we often think that, you know, if we... If we worked with, we're married to, if we had as a father, if we had as a boss, if, if our judge, if our president was a perfect man, we would acknowledge his perfection and submit to him. But one time there was a perfect man, and that was Jesus Christ. And it became very clear as he lived what we are. We killed him. We screamed, crucify him. When we were passing by on the road, we hurled abuse in his face and wagged our heads back and forth. Don't any of us, myself first, don't any of us have the conceit and the pride to think that we would have behaved differently than these people? It wasn't because they were Jews. 
It was because they were men and women made in the image of Adam. And they had all of his corruption. And not one of us would have failed to join in. And the best you can say for any of us is that we would have run away and not been there because we were his closest disciples. We were the ones in the garden praying with him. We fell asleep and then we split the scene because we were cowards. And if I had to weigh who's worse, the bystanders who... It, it looked apparent to them that this was a, a, a valid judgment. You know, three criminals, you know. And so they stop and they hurl abuse in his face. If I had to judge whether they were worse or the beloved John, or Peter, you know, come hell or high water, I'll never forsake you, Jesus, you know. Who's worse? It's hard to say. Uh, no, no, we would have joined in. And so here are the chief priests, scribes, and elders. If he delights in him, let God rescue him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And they were out there because they hated him. And they hated him so much that they left their normal workaday lives and they went outside of the city. And it wasn't exactly a dignified position for them to be in. I mean, think about this. If you had been at the Terre Haute uh, prison when Timothy McVeigh was executed and you had seen me standing outside of the window you know, yelling at him, now look at who's dying, McVeigh. Now how powerful are you? You blow up, you know. Can you imagine how disgusted you would be with me? You know, shut your mouth, Tim. Let the man die in dignity. They didn't give him that choice. They thought it wasn't enough that he was hanging there, but they were throwing this in his face, right? And it's very interesting if you look at the specific content of his taunts, of the taunts of these religious leaders, because nothing in Scripture is without purpose. And what Scripture records is is that their taunts were not even dignified enough to address him directly, but they all addressed him indirectly. Look at the text. It says, He saves others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross. We will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. In other words, what it doesn't say is, to him, you saved others. You cannot save yourself. You are the king of Israel. Now come down from the cross. We will believe in you. You trust in God. Let God rescue you now if he delights in you. And isn't that despicable? I mean, if you're going to hurl abuse in the, in the face of a man who's in his final couple of hours, wouldn't you hope that you had the dignity to look at him? But no, they, they are so superior to him that they just kind of look over their shoulders at him and they talk to one another. He, he, you know, they don't even say it. The other people, at least the criminals, at least the bystanders, have the dignity to speak directly to Jesus. Yes, it's more offensive... But really, it's less offensive to speak directly to him. And when we look at all the accounts of the crucifixion, we see this is the consistent theme with the religious leaders. They never grant Jesus the dignity of his personhood. He is just a gnat under their shoe. That's all he is. They talk about him as if he is absent. The people stood by looking and the other rulers were sneering. It says in Luke 23:35, And then it uses this expression, sneering. And what it literally means is they were turning their noses up at him. Saying, he saved others, let him save himself. So there's the same way of speaking in Luke. He, 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 not you, you, you. And then fourth, the fourth group. We have the soldiers. We have the religious leaders. We have... The people, the bystanders, and then finally we have even the two robbers on either side of him. It says in verse 44, the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Roman soldiers, Jewish religious leaders, passers-by, and common criminals, they all joined in mocking Jesus because as they saw it, God had abandoned him in his time of need and Jesus was incapable of saving himself. And here's what they said. Again, 
He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. And if you go to the Old Testament and you believe that in the Old Testament, God, through the prophets, was pointing forward to the cross, as we believe that in the New Testament, God, through the prophets, is pointing back to the cross. You need to see Scripture as being two pointings. Two mirrors, both focusing the light of God's truth precisely on the high point of history, which is the cross of Christ. Well, we see all through the Old Testament prophecies precisely about the very things that we just read happening. For instance, listen to Lamentations chapter 1, verse 12. It says this. It says, Is it nothing to all you who pass this way? Look and see if there is any pain like my pain, which was severely dealt out to me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. That wonderful, uh, plaintive uh, solo in Handel's Messiah. If there be any sorrow like my sorrow. And again, if we look at Psalm 22, and I'd ask you to turn there with me, please. Psalm 22. Generally, if you open a Bible in the middle, you'll hit Psalms, and then you'll find 22, please. If Isaiah 53 is the top expression of prophecy of the coming Messiah and his suffering and death for, in our behalf, Psalm 22 is the most perfect expression of the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's written by David, and there we read, beginning with verse 1, Another prophecy of what was to come. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. And yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned above the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But, but, I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with a lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. And then down to verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. And what a beautiful description of all the things that are just surrounding our Lord Jesus Christ. Rome in the person of the soldiers surrounds our Lord Jesus Christ. Her injustice, her sham courts, the Jewish religious leaders, their injustice, their sham accusations, their spite, their jealousy, their hatred. All Israel in the person of their leaders, in the person of their commoners, their bystanders, even down to the dregs of society, the criminals. The whole world is hurling abuse and injustice and accusations against our Lord Jesus Christ. And the substance of their taunts, it was their argument that by the very fact that Jesus had not been and was not being rescued from the cross, this proved that God had abandoned him. That's the whole argument. The fact that he was dying, that he had been abandoned to the, the unjust trials, the false accusations, the fact, in fact, even that he had kept his mouth shut during the trial and would not answer the accusations against him, even the fact that all of his disciples forsook him, all of these things pointed to one truth, namely, he was guilty, he was impotent, and either God had cursed him as being a usurper, as being a liar, or God was indifferent to this man who had the audacity to call himself God's son. Now think about this. Some of you have sons. Some of you are sons. Some of you have seen fathers and sons. And let me ask you the question. 
Have you known awful fathers? It's often commented on about certain families that will remain nameless in our, in, our, in our midst this morning, but families where it would be a euphemism to say that they squabble at times. Families, for instance, say of many boys, all right? Kind of narrows it down a little bit, doesn't it? Um, these kids can fight like you wouldn't believe against each other, but you know something? You bring somebody in from the outside and there ain't no disunity in those boys. Let me tell you, whoever comes in from the outside attacks one of them, that man's dead. All right? So you think of the worst relationship of a father and son you know. And let me ask you this question. Do you think that perverse and twisted and heartless and cruel and intimidating father for one moment would allow his son to go through what Jesus Christ went through without stepping in and being his advocate and using his authority and his power and his omnipotence as the creator of the universe to save his son? I mean, let's face it, the accusations that they're making against Jesus have perfect logic. There is no father who's a monster enough to abandon his son to this sort of treatment without rising up and dealing with these men. And that's the one thing that God did not do. He did not deal with these men. His son died. And then you think to yourself, well, what was the nature of the relationship between his son and himself? What did the son say? Well, here's what the son said. The son, Jesus, said this. He said in Matthew 11:27, all things have been handed over to me by my father. Does it sound like there's any lack of unity in this relation? Does it sound like his father abused him when he was young? All things have been given to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Does this sound like they have an ambivalent relationship? Does this sound like they have issues from the past to work out? This morning I did something I've never done before. I print out my sermon page by page, so I'm sure that if I run out of time, I have all the sermon but the last page printed out because I use a slow printer at home, right? And as I'm going through my sermon and preparing to come up here, I notice that I'm missing a page. So guess what a son does when his father speaks to him? I leaned over, and Joseph was there in an instant because he's my son. I said, Joseph, please go home and print out page 7 of my sermon. didn't say anything else. Okay, And immediately he was out of his pew and he was home. And see, this is the relationship of a son and a father. He doesn't need to know where my computer is, which program, what the name of the document is. And he doesn't wonder if I'm at page 8 or page 6. And he knows that I'm going into the pulpit. If I don't have that page, I'm going to be hurting. And he knows that the sermon's coming, it's late, and he better just get up and go. And so the son does what the father asks. This is a relationship that a, a sinful and, and twisted father has with his son. But Jesus wasn't sinful or twisted. He was perfect, and his father was the creator of the universe. And Jesus says about the relationship... All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Jesus says in John 17:24, Father, I desire that they also whom You have given Me be with Me where I am so that they may see My glory which You have given Me. For You loved Me before the foundation of the world. And then the most audacious statement in all the Gospels where he says this. John 10.30 I and the Father are one. What kind of a relationship did this son have with his father? Now you understand their torments. Hey, you say that you're the son of God. Let him deliver him. You know, there's no lack of clarity. You know, the end of 
Kulan Luke, you know, what we have here is a failure to communicate. We don't have any failure to communicate here. Not, not one. This is precisely clear. And then again in John 16:32, Jesus prays this. He says, Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you, speaking to his disciples, to be scattered each to his own home and to leave me alone. But then what does he say? He says, and yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. Now, put yourself back. This is a relationship that Jesus has consistently testified is between him and his Father, right? And his Father is Jehovah Almighty, the only true God, the creator of the universe. Now, put yourself back in the bodies and the mouths and the minds and the hearts, the perverted hearts of those who surrounded Jesus on the cross. And here's what they're thinking. They're thinking this. How deluded this man is to claim for himself such a relationship with the one true God, Jehovah. He's not alone because the Father is with him. It is self-evident how untrue this is. Not only has God forsaken him, but where are even his disciples? And so their taunts went on, and the answer to their taunts and scorns seemed only to be silence and darkness, literally darkness, because from noon to three o'clock in the afternoon, darkness descended upon the earth. And no, it wasn't a sandstorm. It was God. God supernaturally showed what was going on here by darkening the whole earth. Don't ever have light thoughts of sin and judgment. Darkness fell over the whole earth. And if the silence of the Father was not enough to prove the point, they looked at Jesus and they saw that he himself had had no answer for their taunts and he did not answer them as they continued to taunt him. But he held his peace. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. Now, let me ask you the question. Were they justified in throwing this in his face? Absolutely. Don't ever forget that the Bible is never illogical in its portrayal of human beings. It never fails to give us David the adulterer. It never fails to give us the coward Abraham who passes his wife off as his sister. It never fails to give us Peter, who one moment is lopping off the ear of the servant of the high priest, and the next, mirror, the next moment he's, he's, he's reduced to, to cursing to prove his point that he is not a disciple of Jesus because he's scared by a young girl at a campfire. Um, the Apostle Paul, that brave man holding the cloaks as they stone Stephen. This is us. This is who we are. So what is the truth? Was Jesus truly abandoned by God? Was the silence of God the Father and the silence of Jesus Christ is sown, the silence of admission of guilt, or the silence of powerlessness, or the silence of indifference of the Father to the suffering of the Son? Was God the Father truly unfeeling and lacking in compassion when His Son suffered? Well, brothers and sisters, if we look in Scripture from cover to cover, from the moment when Adam and Eve fall and there's the promise given in the Garden of Eden that one will come who will crush the head of the serpent. The whole way to the end of the New Testament where you have the, the picture following Armageddon, where there's no question who's going to win. I was listening to an ad on Christian radio this last week where Armageddon was being advertised, not the reality, but the book. And uh, the ad said, you know, great thrillers, Christian fiction does for Christian fiction what John Grisham did for... Uh, law fiction or something like this. And then it said, you know, basically, do you want to know what will happen in the final conflict between God and evil? 
and uh, you were supposed to buy the books. So then last night, Meryl and I ran out to Kroger on the south side, and we saw a big case with Armageddon in the case. And sure enough, they were all almost all gone. So many people want to know. But the Bible says the truth. And the truth is not that that son was abandoned by his father. The truth is his father vindicated him. He just didn't do it on our time schedule. You know, Jesus himself testified that he could have called 10,000 angels. It was Jesus who told Peter to put up his sword. Jesus could have jumped off the top of the temple when Satan said, show that you're the Son of God. Jesus would have been caught. He gives his angels charge over you so that not even your toe will get hurt. You know, Jesus was God. And Jesus, as they tormented him, had all the authority and all the power and all the ability he needed to walk off the cross. He had the ability to consume Jerusalem in one nuclear holocaust. He had the ability to snap his fingers and watch Pilate change his mind to his back to, you know, to innocence, to guilty, to innocence, guilty. He wouldn't even have to snap his fingers. He could just look at Pilate and Pilate would have been guilty, not guilty, guilty, you know. And everybody would have been flabbergasted to see Pilate saying two things at one time. Jesus could have done anything he wanted. But do you know something? The one thing Jesus could not do and would not do was he would not violate the will of his Father. Because he said that he came to do the work of his Father. And the work of his Father was what? The Bible says God so loved the world, God the Father, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. And so the truth is that all of Scripture focuses, from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, it focuses our attention on the cross. And you know what the resurrection is? It's not the high holiday of the the Christian year. Christmas, Freudian slip. It's Good Friday. And the resurrection is God demonstrating that His Son was at His most righteous and obedient union with His Father when He went up on the cross and bore the sins of the world. And those sins were uh, up there in technicolor surrounding Him as He was on the cross. And there he was, having abuse hurled in his face. Everyone said, it's evident that Jesus is not who he says it is. It's evident that he's not the Son of God. It's evident that God judges him as we judge him. He is a sinner. And God will not lift a hand to vindicate him. And there ain't nothing going to happen here other than a cold corpse being put in the grave. And it's over. And it's over because we say it's over. (laughs) but it wasn't over. And it wasn't over because God the Father loved the Son. And He loved the Son because precisely at the moment when the whole world would have thought that maybe Jesus was the Son of God, and maybe He was one with God, by coming off the cross at that precise moment, He would have defied His Father. He would have disobeyed the command. He would have rejected the work that the Father gave Him to do. And we would have been confirmed in our sins and in judgment for eternity. There would have been no hope in this world. We would have been without hope and without a future and perpetually lost in hell had He for a moment given up His obedience to His Father. The very moment we hurled our abuse at Him, He was demonstrating His power and His union with His Father because He stayed on the cross and bore in Himself the sins of the world. And then what did the Father do? And now we get to Easter, which you all came to celebrate. 
The father said, I am delighted in my son. And after he went through the three days that he had to be in the grave, like Jonah was in the, in the belly of the whale, God vindicated his son. And Rome, oh yes, Rome, and all the muckety-mucks, the Jewish leaders, they'd put the seal on the tomb. They had the big Roman guard. Oh, they were strong men, Marines, special ops forces, you know, out in front of the grave. And God, Almighty God, He came and He raised His Son from the dead. And now, death has been defeated. And by that action, it became clear that all power and authority has been given by God the Father to God the Son. It became clear that when you die, if you die today or if you die 30 years from now, or if Christ returns this moment and we stand before the judgment seat, that God has given to this Son, this Son who stayed on the cross in obedience to Him, He has given Him the authority and the power to judge every man who has ever existed. And every man will be judged on what basis? On the basis of whether that man sees the cross of Jesus Christ and says, as Andrew this morning proclaimed, that cross is my only hope. I was under the cross hurling abuse. I was the one that thought he was impotent, that his father didn't love him, that his father was indifferent, that nothing could be done to help him, that he was a criminal and a liar, that he was a megalomaniac. I was under the cross hurling abuse at him, and at that moment, he was my salvation. He was bearing my sins on that cross. It says in 1 Peter 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we we might die to sin and live to righteousness for what? For by His wounds you were healed. In 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And so Jesus suffered. Jesus died on the cross. Not because of His own sin, but as the final proof of His righteousness. As the final proof of His perfect union with His Father in obedience and love. Of the final proof of His perfect compassion for lost sinners perishing in this world and the next eternally. His suffering in death was not in any way an admission of His guilt, but rather ours. And when He went to the cross, He did not go for Himself, but He went out of the Father's love for us. He bore the iniquities of the world. Isaiah 53, 6, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace fell upon Him. And by His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep. Come on. Have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquities of us all. So now, let me ask you. Do you wish Jesus had come down and whooped up on him? You realize that had he done that, in that moment, there would have been no hope for us. But the just suffered for the unjust. And now... Here's my question. You know, there's always a hook. I'm a salesman. Here's the hook. So what's your response? Would you be indifferent to this? And if you were indifferent to this, how do you think that the Father might respond to you? What do you think God will do with you if you stand before the judgment seat and you say, well, yeah, I heard it preached and it sounded like a nice story, but you know, I had a beamer. I had a new John Deere, you know. Well, I was, you know, I was on the fast track in my job, you know. Well, you know, I committed a daughter. It would be too humiliating to admit to my family that I was a desperate sinner against their mother. I've built up all this accretion of all these years of, you know, God, there are many reasons why I could not humble myself as your perfect son humbled himself. 
So what's your response to this one? If He, being God Almighty, from eternity past sharing in the glory of His Father, if He could turn Himself away from that and not cling to His divinity, but make Himself of no reputation, being found in form of a man, and being humbled even to the point of death, even to a death on the cross. If this is what Jesus, who is God Almighty, could do, how is it that you and I have to protect our pride? How is it that we can fail to fall on our faces in front of the cross and give our hearts and our hopes and our sins honestly to Him and say, I take your blood as my righteousness? You know, the cross is always a purifier. You look at the cross, and as you look at it, it splits, and it becomes a stinking mess to one side, and the love of our lives to the other. Open your Bible or open your hymnals, and you'll see song after song after song after song is about the cross of Jesus Christ. Yeah, we have some that are Easter focused, and they're generally used at funerals. But the cross and the cross and the cross and the cross. And you know something? Your heart is illumined for eternity, by whether or not you love the cross of Christ. Because if you see your sin, and you see your Savior, and you see Him accepting the abuse and being silent as He bears the sins of the world, and you don't respond by loving Him and saying, shoot, you know, what is it to admit my sin to my family? I can't wait to do it! (laughs) You know? I can't wait to do it! That's obviously the response of anybody who's seen the cross for what it is. But then, if instead of exuberantly and joyfully jumping into confession of sin, because nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash us, okay? If instead we turn away from it and we say, you know, I just got a new John Deere tractor and I just bought property and all those excuses that Jesus says that the invitees gave that they couldn't come to the banquet of the king. You remember that story? You know, the father's not going to tolerate you. I don't say that because I'm a father. I say that because I'm a preacher of the Bible. And the Bible says that those who reject this son, that God will consume them with an everlasting fire. And there's not one man here that thinks that's unreasonable. Not when they see the work this son did in obedience to his father. They think, you know something? That father is going to hold them accountable. You know, it's very interesting. When Jesus died and then was raised again, shortly after he went back to the throne room of heaven and sat on the right hand of his father, We have an account of the first sermon of the Christian church, and it's found in Acts 2. It's the day of Pentecost, and Peter preaches it. And it's so interesting, having seen this picture of the crucifixion and then the resurrection, to listen to the substance of the sermon. Be patient, but listen to it. He's got all these Jews there in front of him, and they all have fresh in their memory the crucifixion, the hurling abuse. Many of them were the ones wagging their heads. The religious leaders are there, okay? And so he's preaching to them. What does he say to them? Listen to this. He says, men of Israel, Jews, listen. Listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. You all know about this. You all know about this, okay? This guy. I'm talking about this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, you all know about this and you were the accomplices, but you know, God beforehand to determine that this would happen. Now watch this. He says, this man put him to put this man on a cross by the hands of Godless men and they put him to death. But it says, God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, so he goes back and quotes the Old Testament, David said of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because what? You will not abandon my soul to hell, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then he continues. He says, okay, here's the prophecy. This is what God did. God didn't abandon the grave. And then he goes on. He says this. 
He says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, David wasn't talking about himself. This was a prophecy about Jesus because David's dead. Here's his grave. All right. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, and Jesus was from the lineage of David, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. That he, Jesus, was neither abandoned to hell, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus, God, raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. And therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, and here's the end of the sermon, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And now, what was the response? When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? God vindicated His Son. He raised Him from the dead and He didn't just raise Him but he allowed him to be seen by hundreds and hundreds of people. And then the day came that he lifted him up and glorified him and seated him at his right hand where he ever intercedes for those who look to him in faith. And so I present this Jesus, this crucified Jesus to you, and I tell you that that moment on the cross as the abuse was hurled at him was the most glorious and honorable moment of his life. And all the resurrection was, was the little footnote that proved the truth of the cross. And so, is he your Savior? Is he your Lord? Do you believe in this Jesus? Don't meet the Father, having rejected the Son. Let us pray.